I'm going to ask you to imagine something and just allow it to come up to you however it does. Since we And report back to me what you experienced. So as you walk through this dark area, this black area, you might see or sense or just know that there's doorways. Maybe on your left, maybe on your right, maybe in front of you. You get a sense that one doorway is the one to go through. Where do you go? This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. (sighs) On today's episode, we have dark electronic and ambient music by my oldest friend, Bale. I'll have links in the show notes below. We were friends since childbirth because of our moms being work friends. And uh, with the theme of today's episode, which is past lives, perhaps me and Bale 
were friends in a past life since we've been such good friends for the past 36 years. I wanted to change it up a little bit from all the folk music that's been on the podcast and play something a little different that I like just as much, which is ambient electronic music. And I think it's very fitting to today's episode because it gets pretty cosmic on this episode. Our guest today is Carol Louie. She's a medium, a master hypnotist, a past life regressionist, an author, the director of the Center RVA, and a co-organizer of the 2023 Reincarnation Symposium in California. She lives in Richmond, Virginia, and I went to visit her to talk about uh, a topic which has really been consuming me lately, which is past lives. So this is a topic that, um, well, it seems as though you can find kind of two versions of it. There's one version which is very grounded, which there's been a lot of research, like at the University of Virginia, where they try to prove uh, very um, past lives in a very on the very material, earthly realm. So there will be a child who talks all about a very vivid past life, and they will actually seek out the details of what the child is saying, find the people, the old relatives from this kid's past life, and will kind of test the kid to see if they can answer some some very detailed questions. Uh, oftentimes, the, these kids will have scars, um, well, more so like birthmarks, or even birth defects, which will link up with the past life that they describe. So they, they might have strange moles. They might be uh, born with a, um, um, a maldeveloped ear or something, and that will link up to a wound from another life. Um, this is just absolutely fascinating to me. Now, there's another part of the uh, reincarnation, past lives, near-death experience. When you listen to these stories, you listen to authors about it, where it gets really mystical and goes a lot deeper into a much more like soul, spiritual realm. We're going to get into a little bit of both of that on this episode. Um, so this one, definitely, there are definitely some very dark moments when Carol is describing some of her own past life memories, past life visions. Um, and there are definitely some extremely mystical elements to this episode as we kind of discuss the meaning of the of our lives here, um, the purpose of the soul, et cetera, et cetera, and all the kind of uh, insight she has gained through her own memories and visions and intuitions and meditations. Pretty fascinating. She tells a story kind of more towards the end about um, healing her father's ghost. She had a very difficult relationship with her father. And uh, she tells an incredible, very moving, very touching, very powerful story about uh, yes, healing her father's ghosts, uh, both both through visions during his funeral and later on during visions that came up during a meditation. Very profound. So I actually did a past life regression after this podcast with Carol, and I tried to not have any expectations, but I guess I kind of did. I was hoping to have like a very vivid um, kind of blast through the past, kind of walk through history or see historical imagery. It was not like that. It was more, and it's going to take a while to kind of unpack kind of some of the stuff going on. It was kind of very confusing. And, um, but it was more just kind of like 
being awake and having kind of dream imagery, you know, images I would be used to seeing in dreams or nightmares, but kind of being awake for them and just kind of having these kind of imagery coming to, um, to the forefront of, of my thoughts or imagination on kind of on their own. Um, one of which I'll say before we get more into the podcast, one of the first things that came up very strangely was of what appeared to be, um, an Asian man. I'm thinking possibly Japanese, possibly Vietnamese. I'm not quite sure. He was in green fatigues and, um, he seemed to probably be in his twenties or thirties. But this man with uh, a yellow background behind him was screaming at me and I couldn't tell what he was saying. The whole energy was crazy, really, really crazy. And he was holding a 1911, a model 1911 style pistol up to my forehead. And in the vision or in the image in my mind, it was um, more, um, it was it was more like he was holding it to my third eye than he was holding it to my forehead. And I just didn't care. And I said that out loud. And Carol said, well, why aren't you defending yourself? And I thought, that's a great question. So is that a past life? I have absolutely no idea. And I'm finding it quite frustrating trying to figure out what that is. Is this archetypal imagery just like a dream um, that has a symbolic meaning to me? Or is this an actual past life? I have absolutely no idea. But let's get into this episode where we're going to explore all about past lives and Carol's own experiences. First, let me say thank you to everyone on Patreon. I've got links in the show notes for that at the highest tier. Thank you so much, Jess Paget, uh, Kendall Wine, Ash Barron, Rachel Hawkshaw of Topsy Farms, Alexander Kurashev, on Stanley, Craig Coring. Diana Gonzalez, Earl Suter, Franklin Renshaw, Heron O'Brien, Jacob Griffin, Jamie Nudd, James Mann, Jeff, McLaugh- Jeff McLaughlin, Kenneth Giles, Leslie Peterson-Cohen, Michael Zorn, Michelle Alderson, Nathan Griffin, Ryan Arnold, Rambler, Ryan Goechner, Sophie McVicker, Steve Childs, T. Pierce, Tristan Harper, Tyler Lively, um, Waddle and Dobb Historical Craftsman, Working Class Woodsman, and everyone at the lower tiers. Thank you so much. Uh, you pitching in for this podcast can let me do things like drive hours to Richmond and get a hotel for the night and record two episodes. It's extremely helpful. Okay, so this excerpt is from Children's Past Lives, How Past Life Memories Affect Your Children by Carol Bowman. Carol Bowman was the Uh, mentor of today's guest, Carol Louie. In her book, she talks about Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was a psychiatrist and was the founder and director of the Division of Perceptual Studies at UVA, the University of Virginia. Uh, He supposedly just did an incredible job at accumulating a huge amount of these past, these children's past life stories and tried to prove them. You'll hear more about that on the podcast, but let me read you one excerpt about one of his cases. Now, this takes place in India, so um, as usual, please forgive me for mispronouncing these uh, foreign names. Ravi Shankar confronts his murderers. The case of Ravi Shankar, not the musician, 
was one of the most celebrated cases of reincarnation from India even before Dr. Stevenson investigated it. It is a dramatic example of how cases of strong verbal memories are sometimes reinforced by physical marks on the body. Ravi Shankar was born in July 1951. When he was barely two years old, he informed his parents that he really was Muna, the son of Jaguashar, a barber in the Chipati district of Kunaj. He told them in great detail how one day he had been enticed away from his play by two men, a washerman and a barber, who took him to an orchard near Chintamini Temple, slit his throat, and buried him in the sand. Ravi repeated this story over the next two years to relatives, friends, and his school teacher. He asked his parents repeatedly for toys he said he had owned in his previous life. A large wooden slate, a toy pistol, a wooden elephant, a watch, and a school bag. These were toys his present family could not afford. Still, little Ravi rebuked them for not letting him claim them. He talked of his life as Muna so often that he was a bother to his family and friends, and he threatened to run away to his quote-unquote other family. His school teacher, recognizing the significance of Rafi's statements, wrote them down and sent them to Professor B. L. Atreya, who was the first to investigate the case. Ravi's insistence that he was the murdered boy spread through the village and eventually traveled to neighboring districts. This is how Sri Jagashwar Prasad learned of Ravi's story. On January 19, 1951, Prasad's only son, six-year-old Muna, had been murdered with a razor after being enticed away from his play. Someone had seen Muna go off with Jawahar, a barber, and Chaturi, a washerman, which led to their arrest. One of the alleged murderers, a relative, had a motive for killing the child. It would put him in line to inherit Sri Jagwashar Prasad's property. When Muna's mutilated body and severed head were found buried in the sand, Chaturi, the washerman, unofficially confessed to the crime, but later retracted his statement. Since there was no witnesses, the case was dropped and the barber and the washerman were freed. Prasad was deeply aggrieved and angered by his son's murder. When he heard of Ravi Shankar's claim to have had his throat slit by a barber and a washerman, he went to visit Ravi to see if he was, in fact, his dead son reborn. But Ravi's father feared that Ravi might be taken from him by Prasad and violently refused to let his son meet him. He also feared that the murderers, who were still at large, might avenge any attempt to open the case. But a few days later, Ravi's mother disobeyed her husband and allowed Prasad to talk to the four-year-old boy. Ravi immediately recognized his former father and identified the watch he was wearing as the watch he had bought for Muna in Bombay. He told details about the death of Muna, all of which matched the alleged murderer's confession and the material evidence of the crime. Prasad confirmed other details of Muna's life that only the family knew. Muna had taken some guavas to eat before he left the house before his murder, and he had possessed all the toys Ravi mentioned. Muna's murder had caused his mother to go insane, and she had carefully preserved all of Muna's toys in a closet, waiting for his return. Ravi trembled with fear any time he saw a washerman or a barber. One day, while attending a religious ceremony, he became suddenly terrified of a strange man in the crowd. He recognized the man as Chaturi, 
the washerman, one of Muda's murderers. Little Ravi angrily vowed he would avenge his death. When his mother saw her son's reaction to this unknown man, she made inquiries and confirmed that he was indeed one of the suspects in the murder of Muna. But there's more to this case. Ravi was born with a birthmark that resembled a long knife wound across his neck. From the time he began telling his story at the age of two, he said that the mark was where the washerman and barber had slit his throat in his past life. Dr. Stevenson saw Ravi in 1964 and examined the birthmark. Ravi was 13 years old. He described the mark which ran horizontally across Ravi's neck as being one-eighth to one-quarter inch wide and darker in pigment than the surrounding tissue and had the stippled quality of a scar. It looked much like an old scar of a healed knife wound. According to witnesses, the birthmark had been longer when Ravi was a small child but had gradually faded as he grew older. Dr. Stevenson met Ravi Shankar for a follow-up interview in 1969, when Ravi was 18 years old and headed for college. Ravi said that his memories of his previous life as Muna had vanished. He knew the story only from what other people told him. All of his phobias of barbers and razors had vanished as well, though he still felt uneasy whenever he was in the area of the Chintamini temple where Muna was murdered. The birthmark was still clearly visible across his neck. so incredibly excited for this one so ever since you said yes i've been like i can't believe it's four days away three days away two days away one day away me too uh, awesome so here's my thoughts so we are good this main topic for today you you are have are into all sorts of incredible kind of mysterious things that I'm, I'm a renaissance woman yes for this, for today, I want to try to mainly stay on past lives. Okay. Now, what I've been thinking about is there might be some people coming. This podcast is not all um, mysterious stuff. Sometimes it's just kind of historical or something. So I thought um, some of this stuff can get be like seem totally out there. So I thought, why don't we start this podcast like in a very grounded manner? And um, I know through reading some books by your mentor Carol Bowman and from others, that this, while this may seem like a very new agey topic, well, for one, it's extremely historical and old religions, but also it's being studied in universities, such as the University of Virginia. Um, is there anything you could say about some of the very grounded research in this, just to kind of make a foundation before we start getting into wild stuff, yeah, and I love that. Um, I'm I'm really interested in the reincarnation research, so that's you know kind of like the left side of my brain goes there. But I'm also interested in the um, memories and the mystical aspect. So you know the right side, like I said, I very left brain, right brain balanced. And so I actually got to go to DOPS, the Department of Perceptual Studies. No way. I brought uh, Jim Tucker to Richmond for our IONS group. No way. And uh, I've been communicating with them recently about a new case. 
it's a new old case, actually. One of Ian Stevenson's very first cases back in the 60s. Can you describe... I don't want to cut you off right there, but let's just say this is at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, yeah. Virginia. Yeah. This is a uh, a department where they're studying. Right. It's in the School of uh, Psychiatry. So it's the Department of Perceptual Studies. So it's DOPS, D-O-P-S for short. And it was created by Ian Stevenson many, many years ago. They've been doing research for 40 years. They have over 2,700 cases. Many of them are proved, what they call proved cases. And that means that they were able to go back and find the past life that a child remembers. They focus on children who remember. uh, And this is children from all over the world. And uh, they feel like those cases are going to be less um, influenced by extraneous things. And uh, so when they are able to actually validate the child's statements to the past life, discover the past life, because usually they're not too far away in uh, distance. And so they're able to connect between the two lives, the previous past life and the current life. And when they are able to do that, they have certain markers that they use. That um, That's what they call proven cases. And so uh, Jim Tucker, who you mentioned there, who is, I guess, the protege of the first man you mentioned, Ian Stevenson. Right. So there's this absolutely stupendous Netflix series right now called Surviving Death. That's right. That is a super, what they've done on that show has been absolutely fabulous to to get the real stuff out, not to sensationalize the whole past life stuff. Yes. So there's different episodes on different themes. Some Mm -hmm. of them are messages from the dead, Mm -hmm. reincarnation, past um, near-death experiences, mediums. Um, the episode on reincarnation, I mean, I'm like horripilated. My hairs are standing the entire time I'm watching this episode. But very smartly, they had Jim Tucker, this uh, professor of psychiatry or whatever he is, uh, lead, kind of lead the whole episode. And what you're saying there with the proven cases, they show you on the program a little toddler, who, uh, a white toddler who remembers a past life as this little African-American boy. And here's Dr. Tucker uh, holding up pictures through the kid's description. He could do some research, found out who the little boy might be talking about. Then he, they kind of put a puzzle together right. where he showed the boy. He said, here are two pictures. And, you know, here's two, two women. And saying, which one's your mom? And the kid, just that one. Which one's your dad? That one. Which one is the park you used to play in? That one. So that's kind of the stuff at least from what I've seen in in the show, what you kind of mean when you're saying they prove them, like through these puzzles like that. Right, right. And they actually try to be a little bit more not suggestive, Mm -hmm. to kind of leave it open-ended so that uh, the child, uh, the initiation of the child is is what they're focusing on. So uh, they've done an excellent job. They have a very rigid protocol that they follow, um, uh, a lot of markers that they, you know, tick off uh, when they're doing the research. So I highly commend them for, for what they're doing. And then I'll mention also, I, I'm actually doing a Jim Matlock's uh, course 
Signs of Reincarnation course. It's a 15-week course, and he has followed up with what Stevenson and Tucker have been doing and with some cases in uh, the United States and then partnering with people who are doing research in Europe. Mm. And so, um, you know, I'm I'm really excited to see more people who are interested in this field. Mm. And I cut you off as you were starting to say you're bringing a case to Jim Tucker, or you're working on something together. Yeah, or what I were you saying I there? I recently talked to uh, uh, I sent a query uh, uh, letter to him about this case, uh, and and so Jim Matlock is helping me with this case, and we're just in the beginning stages of it. But what the case is, and what's exciting to me is this man who I met in Richmond, how the universe brings these people to me is beyond me, but it just happens over and over. And uh, I met this man who happens to be one of the very first cases that Ian Stevens studied back in the 60s. Mm. And um, he happens to be a, a Lebanese Druze, which I know a lot about because my son-in-law is from the Lebanese Druze um, society. And uh, so I, you know, here again, why am I being exposed to all of this? But so 60 years after he began remembering, now I'm having a conversation with him. I did a two-hour interview, transcribed that, talked to him about his memories, and in some of the cases, in a lot of the cases, they talk about how the child, after about 9 to 11, begin to forget. And But uh, Rabia is this man's name. His memories are so vivid. And so I have to assume that there's a reason why he remembers these details and why he's put in my life. And so I'm just letting it unfold right now. But Jim Matlock's helping me with the, you know, the more technical things about the research part. And we're, we're hoping to do a paper for this for a journal. Mm. Now, who's the Jim Matlock? I'm not familiar with that name. So he is one of the researchers that uh, is very well known in the field. He does a paranormal research okay. and uh, reincarnation research, and he's been doing this for quite some time. He's based in North Carolina. Okay, okay. Well, this is all already so it's so fascinating. This stuff. Now, here's the, so here's the the bit of difference that I'm seeing between like what they're doing at the university and then kind of where where you're at. So it looks like with at UVA, they're interested, kind of what you're saying, the how um, these past life stories are organically coming out of young children. They're um, finding the kids, documenting what they're saying, trying to find uh, living proof of the things that they're saying. Now, what, from what I gather, what you are, the field that you're into more is part of the past life regression for adults. This is not what they're doing at the university this is a little different. Right, and actually they do not approve of hypnosis okay. for recalling memories. But um, when I began having spontaneous memories back in the early 90s, um, I needed help because mm. they were 
uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, the the memory of the Holocaust, that was a very traumatic memory. That was my dark night of the soul. Hmm. And, um, but, but also, I was having memories of my childhood, and I had had a traumatic childhood, and I felt that these the the, the modality of past life regression therapy could help me remember the things that I had blocked for so many years that were starting to come up as flashbacks. So it's typical PTSD and. Uh, regression therapy became my safe way to be able to do that. So I was doing that at the same time I was having these spontaneous past life memories. And as confusing as it sounds, it was like being able to, if you can imagine a cosmic puzzle that you have many different layers and you find a piece of the puzzle and you know, oh, it doesn't go on on the lower level puzzle, it goes on another level puzzle. Mm-hmm. So I have a, I, I'm a very organized person. So I was able to organize all of these bits and pieces as they were flying at me fast and furiously. Okay, so I'm here because over the past six, seven years, especially as I get more into, you know, living in the mountains, the hunting stuff, um, being around historical trains, I'm having what you're, what I'm assuming is similar mm. to you, these kind of flashbacks, flashbacks. Yeah. or bleed overs. We, uh, bleed in, over. in my field, we call them bleed overs. I want, I definitely want to say a few mine at some point, but let's hear for someone who maybe has never experienced this, maybe has and dismissed it. Can you describe what are you talking about having this flashback? Yeah. Um, well, for instance, Anne Marie, the the Holocaust. Um, she was a nine year old girl uh, when she was killed. She had a very violent death, um, and so it, at first the memories start coming up viscerally. So in in my body, I would I would be shaking with fear. Something would trigger a sound, um, uh, somebody's voice. Uh, I I remember at that time, anytime I was around a, a male who had kind of a German look, mm. with a pot belly and sm- smelled of beer, that would trigger it. Um, I kept hearing this song in my head. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was a song I knew from high school uh, when I was in Alliance Francaise. And I kept hearing this song in my head, Entre les Etoiles. And I knew it was, it was like haunting me. And then, uh, as I, in my interior design work, I happened to have a client who was a French professor and he knew that song. And so he he brought the song to me. He brought the recording uh, of it to me. He he brought the words in French and in English. And again, those things started triggering. More. And so that was a that was a, a trigger of a pleasant side mm. of that memory. I re- I realized he reminded me of her father. And um, the memories got kind of difficult. At one point in time, so much so that I decided to take a sabbatical from from design work. So, so just to be clear, at this period in your life, for decades, you were an interior designer right. before you got really in touch with your 
the, your mystical nature in many ways. That's right. Yeah, and and actually, that was a a, a design was a, a perfect way for me to build up my skills, develop my intuitive abilities, and um, I I actually used to even teach. Um, history of interior design as well as other design classes and never thinking about that the knowledge I would gain in learning about the history of interiors was going to help me identify the periods of times when these people would show up. Oh my God. Well, let's, let's stay on the, the young French girl. So yeah, you were listening to songs Yeah, and what do you mean a memory? Like, do you, was it, did you see like, uh, you know, in your, uh, in your mind's eye? Yes. Yeah. It was like, uh, uh, if I closed my eyes, it was like I was watching a movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, I, I have clairvoyancy. And so sometimes it starts with a picture, but then the picture starts moving. And then the, it's, but it's a, not a typical movie. Where in a movie you are watching it, you're not as aware of what people are feeling, what people are thinking. But in these movies in my mind, it's like I'm knowing what they're thinking, I'm knowing what they're feeling. And um, the interesting thing was for her is I realized she had been coming to me uh, for some time in my life. And and. Um, the first time I was, I had an experience with her, but I didn't know it was her. It wasn't until I started doing regressions that I found out, oh, that scene was tied to this one. I was 16 years old, and my girlfriend and I used to play on a Ouija board. Mm. We were so good, we were so empathic that we could use one finger instead of 10 fingers. And uh, but one time we were playing and I got kind of bored, so I was looking in the other room, and the next thing I know, there, my si- my friend and my sister were screaming because my hand was levitating. And so I look over and I see my hand levitating, and immediately I start panicking too. And then we calm down and we tried again. This time my focus and it did it again. And this time I could feel my hand being pulled towards, there was an enclosed staircase in their home and that went up to the kids' bedrooms. And I realized that I felt if I went to that enclosed staircase, I was going to die. And so we shut the whole thing down. I was afraid of Ouija boards after that until more recently that, you know, I figured out what all these things are about. So then going fast forward and I come to where I start remembering her Mm. and I remember that scene from the being on the Ouija board. And I thought, why was I so afraid of the enclosed staircase? That has something to do with her life. And... So I, I just allowed it. I let the scene go to the next scene. And I realized that she, her family, and a few others were hiding up in a in a attic that you went up a, an enclosed staircase to get to the attic. And I thought, oh, this sounds way too much like um, the diary of Anne Frank. So I, you know, my skeptical mind questions it, but... The feelings were too vivid. 
that I couldn't deny it. And more things, more memories came up. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, I'm hearing, I'm hearing um, these big, heavy footsteps up the stairs. And then that's when I knew that I'm getting close to her death scene. And um, I won't, I won't share the gory details about that. But what had happened was... Well, is it too intense for you to do it? Or are you just... Um, I don't want to freak anybody out, uh, but basically what happened was um, the Nazis found them, came up the staircase. They took the mother away. The, um, the head guy told the younger guys to take the mother away and... As soon as he did that, I'm only nine years old. Anne-Marie's only nine years old at the time. And she knew, she must have had intuition as well. And um, she knew that there was a reason why he didn't have the guys take her away also. It turns out he was a pedophile. Mm. And so um, he took her, raped her choked her and and um but it was really interesting the little girl he yeah he killed the little girl and and you're saying her but this is you yeah yeah i i mean i was experiencing it through her eyes through her her body so so to be clear are you are you experiencing the life of a ghost to help heal this deceased ghost, or is this you? Is this one of your reincarnations? So this was one of my reincarnations, and that's a really good question because I'm also a medium and and have psychic abilities. And when I started these early memories, I thought, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is this me, or am I remembering somebody's ghost and or spirit? They don't like the word ghost. Mm, okay. And um, so... I thought, okay, how can I how can I discern what this is and what they showed me because there was a a famous a known um, person who um, that now I was really skeptical. I you know I couldn't possibly be this person, and so what they my guide showed me was being in that memory. Feel that person's energy. Is it like touching your own skin? And because in my psi abilities, I use psychometry, so being able to touch uh, uh, objects or a person's hands. And I think that's why they, they guided me in that way. So I knew that when I was touching these memories who were my past lives, it was like touching my own skin. When I was reading for somebody else and their past lives would show up, it was like I was touching their skin. So the, I use that as a, a gauge um, for for when I'm seeing things. And actually when I'm reading for somebody else, sometimes one of my past lives will pop in. And, and so I have to discern, you know, are you for this person? Are you for me? You know, or, or are you for both of us? And um, so it just 
gave me other ways to tweak my my psychic abilities and be able to integrate them with my regression skills. We're going to get into that. I want to know, I want to share on the podcast the process of the regression and, yes. and your experience having your first regression and how this all developed. But so what ended up happening to the girl slash you? She was defiled. Oh, was yeah. she killed? Okay. And she was killed. She was choked. And this must have happened around springtime. So that's what we call seasonal memory. And every spring, I would get this this choking feeling in my throat. And, and I have allergies. So I thought, okay, it's allergies related. And But it didn't go away until I remembered Anne-Marie. And what had happened was she was being choked while she was being raped. And... Here's the beautiful thing. As horrific as that scene was, as soon as her spirit left her body and floated above and looked down on this scene, she didn't feel the horror. Mm. And not only that, she's floating above. I'm getting covered with goosebumps even now. She's looking at this man, and she's feeling such compassion for this man. It's like, she's feeling compassion for this man. That was the first time I'd ever had that sensation of looking at someone who committed this horrific crime and feeling such unconditional love and compassion for him. So it really gave me a whole different perspective. You can imagine it took me a while to process all of that, which is one of the reasons why I was on the sabbatical. And so uh, to allow those horrific memories to come up, but to allow myself to to get the soul view, point of view, uh, and experience it from a whole different level. So I can understand how people get wigged out from a human perspective about horrible things happening, but I can also now begin to understand, oh, wait a minute, we sort of set these things up. That's what a lot of these people with past life experiences, um, with uh, near-death experiences, mm -hmm. a lot of you know, very spiritual, mystical people that I've, you know, either heard an interview or talked to personally, they say a lot of the same kind of things. It's definitely something I struggle with that, <clears throat> you know, even though I don't consider myself really Christian, I definitely believe in God or, and I think there's a gr some great, some great teachings in Christianity. Um, but I, you know, how, you know, s such a part of Christianity is like, a, there's a judgment and it's hard to feel that you could do that. You could rape a little girl. And, and when you listen to these people who've had near-death experiences, they say that when you, when you go over to their side, it's like pure love. There's a life review. That's what a lot of these people describe where mm -hmm. you go through your life and you look at all your actions, but there's this like total love and non-judgment. It's like, how would that be possible? You know, how could you do something like that? Like, is there a karma? Is that guy going to have to do the next round in life where he's the little girl so he knows what that feels like? Because one, your mentor who wrote Ch Children's Past Lives, it's a long story, but her child was having experiences of the Civil War and her child just spontaneously after school one day says to mom, you know, this is like a seven-year-old boy, says, we all have to experience war so that we know how to have sympathy for others. 
So it's like, is that what's going to happen to that guy? Like, there must be some kind of karma or something. You can, morality is obviously important. Yeah. So you probably have heard the analogy that we're in Earth school. Earth school, right. And so from that perspective, even though Anne-Marie was only nine years old, what I gathered was she was further along in the Earth school than maybe he was. And so his experience, um, because obviously to do what he did, he was not awakened. Now, interestingly, in this lifetime, I was reunited with him. No way. And, and in this lifetime, he was born into a Jewish family. And in this lifetime, he was sodomized. That, so you just answered my question. Yeah. There is karma. There is. Something There like is that. karma. Uh, however, the, the... Does he know that... I'm sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah. Uh, uh, karma's a little bit complicated. And, and uh, so many people think of it as an eye for an eye hmm. type of thing. It's much more complicated than that. And the easiest way I know how to explain it, just like the Earth School analogy... We all have lessons, and so it's not about retribution. That's that's the biggest point I'd like to make. It's not about retribution. It's not me getting him back for him killing me. It's mm. what lesson did I learn in that experience? What lesson did he learn in that experience? If there's something that's unresolved, then we, we balance it. And the lesson that I learned, and so I forgot to mention that, as soon as I had this feeling of compassion for him, then I realized that, oh, you know, I heard that that Jewish phrase, l'chaim, and I know I don't pronounce it correctly, but l'chaim, to life. And it was about reverence for life. And so I was actually then guided to the life before Anne-Marie, which set up her whole experience, that mm -hmm. she chose to be part of the Holocaust to make amends for the life that uh, Josie experienced as complete irreverence for life. It gets complicated. Oh, yeah, we better talk about stuff like that because now I'm used to this because I'm reading a bunch and listening to all these interviews, but we better explain some of that. But before that, how do you know that this man was the reincarnation? And does this man know that? Is he interested in reincarnation? Yes, he was interested in reincarnation and um, he. we could not have a face-to-face -face conversation about it, but as a medium, I learned how to communicate with people from a soul level. So face-to-face, -face, I knew his story, his background, and so what I learned to do was healing work on a soul level to let him know that Anne-Marie had forgiven him right after the experience happened, and from my soul to his soul, I let him know that there was absolutely no um, uh, ill feelings towards him. And that shifted our relationship on a physical level uh, tremendously. Stupendous. Yeah, this stuff gets super psychedelic super fast. Yeah. So when you listen... Yeah, who needs drugs? Right. So what you're starting to say... I think I think when I knew about this just abstractly, 
It's like, oh, you might have a past life, not, oh, you know, through this framework, we are these eternal souls that are reincarnating over and over and over again. And when you read the books of the people who are doing the hypnosis and people have gone through the regressions, it almost seems infinite. And it seems like at some point, one has to kind of like stop because it's like, it seems like the point of a lot of this is the healing component that we are bringing, like you're talking about with this, this fellow, with your own experience, having these memories surface is that we are, there's things in our, in our material lives that are just, whether it's body ailments, whether it's certain things that freak us out, a phobia, there are things that we have in this life that are just don't make sense. It's not a childhood trauma. It's not, um, it just comes from somewhere very mysterious. And it, at least for some people, it turns out that it seems as though these things are stemming from other lives and it keeps going down the chain. That's right. Look, look at anybody that you can think of and think, ask yourself, does that person have a wound? Whether it's physical, emotional, mental, whatever. And, and if you don't understand the source of that wound, then you're not understanding the person. And um, so if we have a way to be able to look at those wounds and heal them, that's just one part of the, the journey. The other part is all the insight that we can give, you know, because not only do we bring wounds from other lives, we bring skills from other lives. And so, as I mentioned, you know, that 11 years old, I knew I wanted to be an architect, unbeknownst to me that I was bringing architectural skills from other lives. So the child prodigy is a good example. Child prodigy, exactly. And and so at 11 years old, I began drawing isometric perspectives in the, in the sand, you know, we'd play, the uh, my little girlfriends and I would play house, you know, on at the playground. I didn't want to play with the dolls. I wanted to draw the house. So I drew the house in isometric perspective at 11 years old with no training. Where did that come from? Mm. I later was one of the first girls to take architectural drafting in high school later to find out that Westerners do not draw an isometric perspective. It's usually a modified one-point perspective. However, in China, back in the day, uh, isometric perspective was very much used. And and so I dis- later discovered uh, the lifetime where I was that architect. In China? In China. And not only uh, was it a lifetime in China. It was one of my ancestors. Okay, that this brings up something I want to talk about. So I hope someone listening to this who maybe has never gotten into any of his past life stuff is c- catching on that we incarnate for one time a woman, next time a man, uh, this race, that race, this part of the world, that part of the world. <clears throat> now I'm in, uh, now I'm wondering about uh, reincarnating within ancestry, within a family tree, because it seems as though people are very interested in their ancestors and that there's something very important in that. Many older you know, men are, have their family trees. They're researching this ancestor, this ancestor. I did an episode with um, 
an African-American guy who goes by the Black Potter. He's an artist. He does face jugs in the style of his enslaved ancestors in Jamaica. Incredible episode. Um, he feels so incredibly connected to that. Um, I did an episode with a Cherokee man who talks about um, doing doing the warrior dance at Williamsburg and him and his his brothers, his fellow dancers, all could feel their ancestors around them. That's incredible. So clearly there's something important about our ancestors, but what the hell is going on if we're bouncing all over the place? Oh, experience. We created this world to have experience. When we understand the beautiful part of why we created this world, then life becomes magical. And I'm glad you brought up the Native American and also the African because both um, uh, uh, many people in in the Native American uh, or Amer Indian is another term for that, and also many African tribes have believed in reincarnation mm. for many, many thousands of years, and they actually look for the reincarnates of ancestors. Mm. And some tribes will even mark the ancestor, and then when a new uh, child is born, they'll look for that mark. So I'm writing about that now uh, in in the book that will cover the history of reincarnation beliefs. And I've been able to document things back 200,000 years ago. Mm. Well, I mean, even fascinating for me, knowing that at least in this lifetime, my ancestors go back to, or in Europe. So funnily enough, the the Celts, yes. so the yep. of Central Europe and of the United Kingdom, they believe in reincarnation. The Druids all believe in reincarnation. But I don't want to get away from this idea of reincarnating down a family tree. Do some people just kind of, does maybe some people have an adventuresome soul that's going all over the place? And then do some people say, if you're a Shawnee, do you just keep kind of sticking around your Shawnee community? Like, I don't know. Do you have any insight on this? I do. And really, it's about what the soul wants to do. Um, sometimes the way I see the uh, the interlife experience is um, people hanging around saying, "What if? What if we do this this time? What if we do that? You know, next time." And so it's much more playful. Hmm. And and yes, there are things that need to be worked out that you know can get horrific and serious, but. But it's meant to be an adventure. So just like you plan a vacation, you know, okay, you might want to go to some place that that you get uh, pampered. Another time, you might want to go and rough it in the jungle, and you might want to go on a on a, a vacation that's really focused around ecology. You know, there's all these different ways that we experience this life. That's you know, if you think about as above, so below, mm-hmm. as below, so above, those things that we like to experience, we've chosen in our in our soul perspectives, we've chosen to have all these kinds of experiences. Okay, so listening to a lot of incredibly compelling interviews of people with near-death experiences, you know, where your hair stand up, because clearly there's some incredible truth of, or mystery that these people have had visions into and are expressing. 
the themes you're bringing up right now are constantly coming up, that we've chosen this life. It's been very orchestrated. Again, that's so hard. You know, it's awesome. Like I, for the most part, other than some, some depressive episodes here and there, for the most part, I really love my life. So I can see how maybe I chose it. But like, why the fuck would you choose to be a sex slave? You know, it's like that, that part is like really difficult. Like why, like what, you know, why would you, are they actually choosing those details or are they just choosing extreme adversary, a lifetime of extreme, something extremely difficult? You know, it it seems like this is some kind of game where we're having soul growth or something. Well, imagine that you're writing a story and you have all of these characters in the story. And uh, if you don't have the antagonist, then uh, how is the protagonist going to move on in the story? So sometimes you choose to be the villain and sometimes you choose to be the good guy. Are you serious? Because I was going to say that. Someone you're choosing, hey, I'd like to know what it's like to be a serial killer. Yeah. That's a that? choice? That's a choice, yeah. And, and, and you know, it gets more complicated, but what if you choose to be the villain because you're really, there's a, you accept that you're going to play this part to be able to help the other person. And to give you an example of that, at, when I first heard Brian Weiss uh, so I was living in Florida at the time. Who is that? Uh, Brian Weiss is um, a psychiatrist who wrote Many Lives, Many Masters, and many other books. But that was the book that was going around at the time. And I was just beginning to remember past lives. And so I found his book. That was kind of mir- miraculous how that all happened. But I found his book. I went to his workshop. And then um, he came to Naples uh, for another workshop. So I went to that one. And he's saying, and I'm new to all of this, you know, probably where you are now. And he was saying, you choose your parents. And I said, no effing way would I choose my parents. You know, who in their right mind would choose parents who would be abusive? Mm. And... um he took us, took the whole group. We had 600 and some people in the audience. He took us into a group regression, and he he goes back to a happy time in your childhood. He goes in utero, and then he starts going back year by year. But I got stuck in an in utero memory, and I could feel, know my parents' feelings, their thoughts, and... I would and I couldn't I couldn't go past. I just got really stuck there so much so that when he's bringing the rest of the audience out, I'm still stuck there and fortunately I had energy workers sitting next to me and I said I need help and they they literally carried me out of the uh, room went to the bathroom and I could get my hands under the water so I could get grounded again. And it took me a couple of weeks to really process that. But in that two-week time period, I had a vision. It was my first interlife vision where I saw the moment I did choose my parents. And it was such a futuristic scene. This was back in 1990. 
two or three, and and way before computers were where they are now. But I saw this. It was like a huge conference table. And being a designer, I said, hmm, I've never seen material like that. What's that made out of? And I, 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 to this day, I still don't know what it was. But in the table, very long, and it had like a screen, the whole length of the table, and the screen was moving. Now, we have some digital works that can do this now, but not in 1992 and three. And so the screen's moving along like a movie, and it's, you know how you, you're shown previews for a movie, you know, clip, clip, clip. And this was moving along very fluidly, and all of a sudden I said, wait, stop, go back. And I saw this man and a woman, so I'm, I'm interracial, I'm, I'm, you know, half Chinese, half uh, uh, Caucasian. And I saw this Chinese man and this Caucasian woman, and I, I was so drawn to them. I knew, okay, there's something about these people that, that those are the ones I have to choose. Well, it t- I didn't know all the details then, but several more regressions later, I discovered that we had been together in another lifetime, also in China. In this lifetime, I was the daughter, my mother, my father, my father was the patriarch in the other lifetime. My mother was the matriarch, or in, in the Chinese terms, we'd say Tai Tai, the number one wife, and I was the concubine. And talk about sex slave, that was what he wanted. And she was very young. She had not even started ministrating. So she was very young, and he just collected women you know, to service his needs. And it was during a time when um, uh, there was a famine, and and her name was Mei Ling. Mei Ling's family was affected by the famine. They had been trying to raise her uh, prospects, so they had been binding her feet and uh, to be able to make her more marriageable, marry up. And uh, so she had bound feet, they had this famine, and the way for them to survive that famine was to sell her off. So instead of the marriage that they wanted to have for her, they ended up selling her off to this very wealthy man so that they could survive. So that's been a theme in my life, too, to sacrifice for my family. So Mei Ling, that's you. That was me. So you were your father's concubine in another life. Right, right. And then you were sold just kind of as like a sex wife to yeah. the to some other guy. Right, right. Okay, this is, so it, again, I've started- I know, mind blown, right? I, it, it is so insanely psychedelic and I'm just starting to, you know, I'm not totally blown away because I've been reading about this kind of stuff, but please elaborate for the listener. So it seems as though in, if this stuff is all happening, that people that we are having these kind of like soul groups where the people closest in our lives are, you know, our wife, our, um, our lover or our best friend or our parents or our siblings. We have, it seems as though we have been with these groups of people in different organization throughout our lives. So 
the insanely disturbing thing that you just said is basically here you are today, you're, and your your father is your father. In another life, you were his lover. You know, th- that is so insanely disturbing. And I've been wondering that with myself because me and my dad, my relationship to my dad is quite strained. I try to kind of heal it uh, as much as I can. I do have some blocks where I just want to ignore him. He lives in England. Um, but I, when I look back at my childhood, he was my enemy. Mm. And he was the obstacle. And if I, I hated this person and I wanted to get away from this person. And so now reading these books, I'm like, well, was he an enemy in another life? Did, were we mortal enemies? I have no idea. Yeah, that is a wonderful point. And I hope if people take away nothing but looking at the people around you, the people you love, the people you think you hate, or you you know at least don't get along with, look at them with new eyes. <sighs> What is your soul agreement? And and going back to Mei Ling, um, her the reason why I was so drawn to my my mother and father in this lifetime was because Mei Ling had cursed them in that lifetime. No. She killed herself to get away from the situation, but before she did, she cursed them. And so, you know, I I was raised Christian, so I I remember in the Bible how it talks about, you know, don't curse people because, well, now I've had the experience of of that. And it so it wasn't about the what they did to her. It was about her cursing them was the reason why I needed to be reunited with them. And um, in this lifetime, I had to forgive myself for feeling the way I'd helpless, cursing them, and uh, and that was my, that's how I saved myself. My God. So your parents today, and whatever happened in your childhood, though you said it was pretty rough, it's because you cursed these people centuries ago in China. Yeah, and they carried some of the same patterns from that lifetime. They carried them in this lifetime. Mm. The matriarch was uh, emotionally and and verbally abusive to everyone around her. The patriarch, you know, had this insatiable um, sexual appetite. Um, I was molested by my father. Mm. And my mother was not supportive for mm. me at all. And so I felt abused by both of them in this lifetime. Mm. I I had searched for ways to forgive them because w- one of the things I did learn from, from my Christian upbringing was forgive them for they know not what they do. Mm. And I let that be a mantra for me until I discovered this work. And so I I worked on how to have a better relationship with them as best as I could. But like I said, it wasn't until I discovered regression therapy that now I began to see it from new eyes. That is upsetting. Um, Yeah, this is like such profoundly shocking stuff. If if this is all real, and I'm starting to really, really believe it, this is like, why do we talk about such asinine shit like on TV and um, news like when this is happening like yeah. this incredible mystery that we're part of this incredible soul school that you're saying um well i guess 
the last thing you said was the 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 regression. So someone listening who's never heard anything about past lives, why don't we start talking about the regression process? What is it? How does it work? And what were your experiences with it? And then maybe we can get into experiences of people that you've done it for. And I'm going to do it later. Yeah. Which makes me nervous because I've had all sorts of weird experiences. And you know, something that makes me a little nervous is for the past few days, I've been thinking, well, what if I, you know, I wonder what happened to me. My, my legs when I was, sorry, let me go on a quick tangent. My legs as a kid from like four to like nine, I would be screaming every single night because my legs hurt so bad. And my parents would come into my room and massage my legs. Like when all the kids in school and in elementary school are stretching and doing all that stuff, I can't, I can barely lean forward still. My legs, they ache every day and uh, I can barely stretch. I've started doing some yoga, which helps, but they just, like my girlfriend or my fiance now has said, um, my legs are almost like wooden boards. And there's just this feeling like, did something happen to my legs in another life? Were they smashed to smithereens? So I've been kind of having this a little bit more of a victim uh, perspective. Like, oh, what if all these bad things happen to me in another life? But then it's like, well, wait a second. What if I did bad things? What if I'm the slave master? What if I was a Nazi officer? You know, that's, it's kind of disturbing. I'm used to these thoughts because I'm into Jungian therapy and part of Jungian therapy is the shadow. So acknowledging the darkness within all of us, our own dark thoughts. So we don't, so we can express them, you know, in a controlled way, like art and not out in the world unconsciously, like the Nazi officer with you in that, as that little girl. Um, I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but yeah, talk about the regression process. So much to explore, yeah. Um, so I started out in meditation before I actually got into uh, regression work. And that's a, a wonderful uh, foundation for this because I began having, you know, these experiences even during meditation. And I, I since learned that, oh, I've done this in many lifetimes, meditate, visions, uh, shamanic type of visions, and also even regressions. I used to be involved with regressions in other lifetimes. So when I started opening up to regressions, I don't know if because the the meditation practice, I just started picking it up really fast. But then I realized, oh, it was a combination of both, that the meditation practice and the memories from other lives, I have done this before. And so in regression therapy, it's so easy, really. What we're doing is in our normal everyday state, we're in beta consciousness. And, you know, they're, they've been able to, to measure this, to show how this works, the parts of the brain that get lit up during all of these states of consciousness. But when we can shift from beta to alpha, to delta, to theta, you know, few of us can go to gamma, but uh, when we can make these shifts in our states of consciousness, now it's like opening a door. Mm. So we're just getting out of that mundane state of consciousness, and we're open, it's always there. We just keep the door closed. Mm. But when we can open the door, now we can 
go into other aspects of ourselves. So in art, you're, you're an artist, musicians, they get there mm. in moments. Mm. You know, sometimes there are sustained moments. You know, think about those times when you lose all sense of time because you're so engrossed in what you're creating, right? That's the best thing in the world. Oh, yeah. Especially making like music and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. The same thing is true for these trips across time and space. And so, and because I, you know, because I am very left and right brain balanced, I seem to, in my meditation classes, I noticed I was attracting a lot of people who were left brain, how to get them out, you know, to get out of that left brain. So you don't just say relax, you kind of go in the side door and you work it. And in a way, I, I call it using the mind to get out of the mind. And so I can check also with with my clients if they're that type of person or do they you know uh, go into altered states more easily so I can adjust which tools in my toolbox that we need to use you know to, based on that and it's incredibly easy to do and uh, whether the experience is just previews or whether whether it's very, very deep, um, I know that it's the person's soul guiding the experience. I'm just um, a vehicle to help that happen. Just like as a medium, I connect with my person's, my client's soul. From my soul to their soul, that's how I make the connection. And I be, and and if they want to speak to. Um, someone who has passed on, then I get that connection from their soul to that other person's soul to be able to get the message, you know, that wants to be revealed. But um, it's, it is the person's soul guiding them. So a lot of people ask, you know, why don't uh, more people remember? Again, going back to the school analogy, you don't give a quantum physics equation to a uh, a kindergartner, right? Mm. The kindergartner is not ready. Those people who are not remembering, they're just not ready. Mm. But for people who are beginning to remember, and I believe we all have hints at these different things. You know, I can talk to a, a person who's never remembered anything, and I can talk to them and I can see where their soul's been trying to give them hints about how to remember. Okay, well, let's talk about some of those hints. My feeling lately, I've got a lot of friends and acquaintances who are into like living history. So you dress in period clothing. You're th These people do crafts. That's a tell. Okay, that's what I want to ask. That is are, a tell. Yes. Yeah. And I have a friend, and I think he would be pretty weirded out at me talking like this but because he, he's pretty grounded guy he's a he's a he was a he was a sheriff at one point he's a police officer but he does living history in the 1700s he puts on a fair he is one of the most passionate people and when he is in period clothing when he's you know um do rifle making horn carving he is illuminated his eyes are sparkling yeah. and his body is beaming yeah. and when he's with other people in this setting he is just like one of the most joyous one of the most exuberant human beings I've ever come across. And I'm like, you've done this. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know? 
This yeah. must be a past life. And that's what I'm yeah. just feeling so intensely. Yeah. So my question is, are and you've already answered it, do you find that people's deep historical interests relate to their past lives? Absolutely. In fact, of my younger brother and I, I'm the least Chinese looking, but I have more connection with the Chinese culture than they do. And it's because I remember being there many, many times. Mm. So, yeah, very, very typical. So that's one of the things we we talk about. Look at the things that you love, that you're passionate about. Look at the things that you are you do not like. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the the sound of a German uh, accent that can still trigger me unfortunately but you know that's just just the way it is uh so look at the things you love look at the things you don't love i don't want to travel to south america i have no desire to go there i have three lives that came up recently that were pretty horrific uh in south america and and so i don't need to go down there to to reconcile that i can I can travel there in my mind. Yes. So this interestingly fits in with my Jungian uh, perspective, um, which is that the things you hate should be in the people you hate, the things you hate, you should look at those because that is probably has something to do with you in many ways. And it goes back to that idea of the shadow in, in the Jungian vernacular. Yeah. And I've come to believe that like you say, those things that you hate are a tell about something that you're working on. And I've come to believe that the way to um, overcome that is to be able to bring it to a place where you love it. <sighs> love it unconditionally, love it, which is different from, you know, the love that most people think about. But, and I believe that because I believe that planet Earth is created to give us experiences to manifest love in all kinds of ways. So is that the end goal for the soul I believe, process? I believe it is, yeah. Okay, this, so I am, when it comes to the Far East, I don't know very much about like Buddhism and whatnot, but... You know, I'm vaguely aware of this idea of samsara, which is the constant wheel of life, death, and resurrection. There's an absolutely mind-blowing meditative documentary called Samsara that is extremely, it'll rock, soul, blow you to smithereens. And there's no speaking in it. It's just music and imagery from across the world. And the theme is this wheel of constant life, death, and rebirth. So from my understanding of that, um, and, and please let me know, with Buddhism, there's this reincarnating, but then we want to get off of the samsaric wheel. You want to get out of the reincarnation. Why? Right. Why? And I'm more Taoist in that perspective. So Taoists are not necessarily wanting to get out of this situation. Okay. We want to embrace it and yeah, become like one with alive. the Tao. And so I un- I understand the Buddhist perspective. Hindu has a similar perspective, although there's there's marked differences between Hinduism and and Buddhism, and uh, and and that's why as I sat with and meditated, you know, about Buddhist teachings, about Hindu teachings, uh, and Taoist, I said, "What is truth? What is truth?" And over and over, I kept 
coming to the realization that rather than ascending off the planet, Mm. that we are meant to love every aspect because as we love every aspect of this earthly experience, we're actually embodying our true nature, which is unconditional love, and we're doing it in the physical world. Okay, this is something I want to, I've been thinking about on my drive here this morning. I had a three-hour drive. I was just, I've been thinking about all this stuff and things I want to talk about for days. One thing I've been wondering, you know, again, through my Jungian perspective, I definitely believe that everyone's an individual. We all have our own path. Um, we have our own callings. So um, this is just a thought. I don't necessarily, this isn't necessarily my opinion, but um, so obviously I feel that if you have an intense calling to be a shaman, to be a priest, to be a nun, to be a monk or a yogi, great, follow your calling. But then at the same time, I wonder, wh- what's the point of reaching spiritual enlightenment or you know, constantly going to psychedelics to constantly be in this other spiritual realm when that's where we're going and that's where we come from that's where we go when we die. Shouldn't we be super grounded? On, shouldn't we be very focused on the material world, this incredible planet, growing your food, feeling the earth, making love, just like doing sensorial things, smelling things, touching things. If we are infinite souls and you only get a few of these 80 year periods where you can be embodied, you know, we, we our culture is starting to really say like, materialism is such crap, right? But is it like if for 80 years out of infinity, you can have a beautiful sword, you can have a beautiful car. I don't know. I've just been wondering this on my drive today. Is there a mystical way to materialism or something? I I think you're heading in the right direction. Uh, You know, if you think about it, uh, if if there is a creator that created all of this world, and when you really look at the world, there's a lot of abundance in the world, you know, beyond the, beyond the things that, that man has created. But the natural world, there's a lot of abundance. If, if you take all of the um, things that we've built and you leave it alone, you know, you've probably seen those documentaries, Nature will take it over and just transform it. It's just so beautiful. And so, in my thinking, if this is so, then where is my place in all of that? And and because I've had that, those mystical experiences of being in that creative energy of oneness, of, of un, being unconditional love... And at the same time, that, that spark of individuated consciousness that says, I chose to come out of the oneness to experience an individuated journey on this earth plane. So I believe we're here to love, we're here to create mm. the creator, the universe. There's a... Everything is creation. So I believe those two things. And when you really look at it, there's a beauty, there's an order, there's a harmony to all of that. So I feel like those are our, our, our natural instincts. But we've forgotten it. Mm. Speaking of forgetting, 
with all this past life stuff to kind of go back a little to the past life thing. A lot of these people that I've listened to in interviews say that we forget these past lives for a reason. And one person that I listened to said we forget because it would be too unbearable the amount of homesickness we have for where we truly come from, not here on earth. I mean, what do you think about that kind of stuff? That might be true for some, but I don't think it's true for everyone. Um, If a person has homesickness for for that place, then that is a tell about their wound. Mm. And, And I can relate to that to some extent because I know for the longest time, I felt like I was on the wrong planet. Mm. And and even as a little kid, people used to say to me, I'd get this look in my eyes and people would say to me, Earth to Carol. Mm. And and I'd wa- witness the, uh, the angry voices and the way people treated other people. And I, and I think... You know, that's not the way we did it on our planet. And so in 2003, I think it was, I had my last regression with my regret, my, my original regression therapist, Arthur Cataldo. He was getting ready to move from Florida. And so I had a regret. I wanted to have one more regression with him before he moved. And in that one, I had that experience of going home to my original planet before coming here and so i realized oh that's where all of that energy of not feeling like i'm on the right planet came from and as soon as i had that experience of remembering that and and plus i was told in that memory of but you know you have an assignment on earth and you're here to witness, to observe, to learn from the human experience and bring that information, you know, back. And once I had that experience, it was like, oh, I really am a tourist here. And it made me much more comfortable being in my own skin. Hmm. So I, I can sort of relate to how people feel about that, but I think it's there's more to it than than what they realize. Well, you just said something astronomical about another planet. So that was one thing I've been thinking about. If this is this lesson learning kind of game-like thing we're coming down to from some soul other place, why would this be the only place? Right. So there's multiple places, and you're saying you've experienced a lifetime on some other place? Yeah, not only multiple places, but multiple universes, and and that might be a little bit too much for most people, but <laughs> but the, the movie last year, uh, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, mm. what a great movie that was to begin opening it. Uh, our consciousness to multiverses and and look how many awards that it mm. won. I haven't seen it yet, but I know what you're talking about. Oh my gosh, you got to see it. Um, what did this other world look like? Um, were you in a were you in a body like this one right here, or did the, did these conscious entities have a different type of body? It was similar to humanoid bodies. But there was more of a consciousness about 
um, wellness and mm. wholeness and harmony and co- collaboration. Mm. And so the the discord that I felt on earth was the opposite of what I experienced there. And um, the focus there was on creativity. Mm. So natural that I would lean towards creative arts in this lifetime. Would they be... So this is another question I had. Okay, if we... So if we're going ahead with all of this stuff, and this is all real, then why couldn't we reincarnate into an animal? Why couldn't we reincarnate into a tree? Why couldn't we reincarnate into what people have been talking about lately? An alien, an extraterrestrial, a different biological Mm -hmm. form of consciousness. So you're saying on this other place, it was something different than what we are right here. Yeah. Would it be what we, in common vernacular, just say an extraterrestrial? Extraterrestrial. Would it just been another thing? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, many cultures believe that, um, for instance, my next incarnation could be off-world. Yeah, that's that's, um, a common belief in many cultures. This stuff is so buck wild. It is so wild. <laughs> I know. It's not boring at could, all. Could you see what the place looks like? Um it, Where there's it was it was more beautiful than Earth. Mm. It was, you know, if you think about the most pristine place that you can think of on Earth, mm. and the colors were more vivid. And the air quality, uh, I, I have environmental illness, so the air, air quality here uh, is, you know, it can get to me at times. And But the air quality, the water, oh my goodness, the closest I've ever experienced to the quality of the water was the water at my, my grand, maternal grandmother's farm was a very deep well, and the water out of that pump that that uh, uh, was on her farm. That was probably the closest to the the quality of the water there. Could you see like structures? Like, did people do? Do these things live in houses? Houses, yeah, <laughs> houses. The architecture was beautiful. Is more organic looking. I think that's one of the reasons why I loved uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, architecture, because mm. he he was the first proponent of organic architecture, mm. uh, you know, on, on, in, on Earth, as far as I know. Mm. Wow. I don't, I mean, I've gone through a handful of my questions there. You know, it's interesting because um, I try to really stay away from, um, I, I really try to stay away from like the contemporary social issues, especially on the podcast, because all these things have become so divisive that I, I just don't even, I don't, for one, I don't even really care that much. I care about creativity and stuff like that. But secondly, I just don't want to bring up these divisive things. But um, I do think it's fascinating through the point of view of reincarnation, things like, you know, one of these catchphrases currently is like cultural appropriation. I find that abhorrent because as a creative person, if you feel a, the muse and you follow the muse, it has its own idea. You're not sitting there thinking, I want to adopt someone else's culture. You are just being pulled by the spirit of creativity. But um, if you're into this, reinc- if you think this is reincarnation, well, 
then in another lifetime, you might still have what little memories yeah. of another culture. So yeah. you're going to be bringing that into this lifetime. I have a friend, he's Greek. Um, he went and taught abroad in Korea. He married a Korean woman. This guy is carving Asian masks all the time. Is that cultural appropriation? Or did, in another lifetime, was he? Is he? did he go back home? Right. So, I, I agree 100%. Who's to say? And... And, you know, if it's his passion. Exactly. You can't deny yeah. the intensity of passion. That mm -hmm. would be, you know, anti-creativity Yeah, is how I see it. Yeah. Um, boy, this has been incredible. Should we, um, I definitely want to have you tell like some of your ghost stuff, but um, I mean, is there more to the past life? I mean, that was just like a whirlwind. I can hardly even remember all the wild stuff that we just got into there. Um I guess I could say, oh, okay, here's something that I'd like to ask you with people you've done regressions for. And I'll give an example. Well, I'll ask the question and give an example. One of which is, so you can see that people's historical interests are some kind of marker of a past life. Um, do people get triggered by movies? And I'm going to tell you one. Mm-hmm. I see that all the time. And you're nodding your head. I would love to hear some examples from people, maybe if it's okay to share their from their regressions. I'm going to tell you one that I've had. I've never had a past life regression. Uh, I never thought much about past lives. Um, here I am living in New York City, trying to get my film career going. This is about eight years ago, seven years ago, whenever the movie came out. Um, I had almost no knowledge of American history. I never paid much attention in school. As a kid, I hated American history. I thought it was super corny and just not interested, not interested in colonial history, Native Americans. Um, and uh, here I am in the movie theater watching The Revenant, the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's about uh, these frontier trappers and he's attacked by a bear and all these things happen. Um, it's based on a true story. The movie took artistic liberties, but here I am in this movie I don't even know the history. I don't even know that these men are fur trappers. So that's what they are. I don't even know that. I just thought they were frontiers people. I don't know anything about trapping history. And the movie just started. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio shoots an elk. They go back to camp. All the men are there. They're processing beaver hides. I didn't even know that when I saw the movie. I didn't know what they were doing. Just thought it was a frontier camp. All of a sudden, this uh, band of Native Americans on horseback rides into this camp and starts slaughtering them. While we're watching this, all of a sudden, I start shaking. What I can only describe as, is a as a memory below, like below, not even in my stomach, below the genitals, like deep in my core, in the center of me at the bottom, starts rising up, coming like up my spine, a memory. And I'm shaking. I'm feeling a panic attack going on. I feel like I need to scream and run out of the movie theater. Mm. And I just sit there and I'm just like shaking, watching this scene. The scene comes to an end. A, you know, a handful of those fur trappers get away on a keelboat, and the and then this sensation goes away. And I'm like, what the fuck? I've never experienced anything like that before while watching a movie. What the fuck? And it's just like it. The it was like a memory wanted to come and it wasn't going to come. But it was like, I've lived that. That's happened to me. So Beautiful. something like that has happened to me. It'd be interesting to go into. Well, we'll see. If I don't do. want to trigger you to go into yeah. it right at the moment. But um, Do you find other people see something from a movie and that kind of blows open? 
Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the reasons why I love movies so much. Is that yeah, they can trigger you. And and uh, like I was mentioning before about the South American memory, mm. I knew it was coming up. So what what shows up on my stream is uh, what was that movie with? Um, I think Robert De Niro is in it. Uh, um. And I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but it's. I realized that came up for a reason. I need to watch that movie, and and I cried through the whole thing because mm. watching what the Spanish, the Portuguese were doing to the natives. So the conquistador time period, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah, okay. and and I was in a rage about it, and and even the. Um, the priest in that movie, you know, everybody was so self-serving and the way they treated the natives. So this is 1500s, uh, 1500s Spanish conquistadors in South America. Right, right. And so, yeah. And, and if, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could watch a movie and, and do the Jungian thing is say, okay, what in this movie that you liked or disliked, and let's talk about mm. it. Let's have a com- you know that would make a different kind of uh, movie going event, wouldn't it? Mm. Yeah, and to now to see that there's to see it's like almost like creativity is you know we say oh it's just a movie entertainment or is it some kind of archetypal story for healing? That if you've experienced this, here's another version of it. You can cry at home instead of having to reincarnate and be sacked by this right. other culture that kills everybody, et cetera. <laughs> you can just do it through watching a movie. Yeah, learn the lessons vicariously. Right. And, and I actually feel like the reason why movies and media are doing these wonderful stories goes back to what Jungian uh, talks about the collective unconscious. Yes. That there's a mass of collective consciousness that is growing and inspiring people to create these stories so that on a on a physical level the collective can be influenced. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That is definitely one of the major themes in, in Jungian analysis is the collective unconscious. And also to be wary of the collective unconscious because the collective, just like a person, can be possessed. So you could say like in Germany, there was the possession of the Nazi idea, right? So it's not all those people are evil. They were they were possessed by the collective, just like with mob mentality, you can get possessed by the collective and the archetype that the collective is kind of feeding on or... Yeah, and what if that's happening right now? You know, in the 90s, when I was remembering Anne-Marie, I was fortunate to come across this book called Beyond the Ashes. It was written by um, a Hasidic rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yonason Gershom, and he was counseling people all over the world who were remembering being um, Jews during Mm. the Holocaust. Look at what's happening now with many white supremacists Mm. that are coming out of the shadow. Mm. And what if they are 
reincarnates of the Nazis. Yeah, it's all, this is all just so tremendously confusing to try to navigate. But yeah, yeah. exactly. Who knows what the hell is going on? Yeah. And if just a few of those beings could have a breakthrough, right? that could shift a collective consciousness. Well, that's another theme with the Jungian stuff. Mm -hmm. That, uh, you know, that's part of the individuation, being truly yourself and being truly conscious or trying to be, and that that can affect the people around you. Right. Critical um, mass. I, I keep sending energy towards critical mass. Mm. What exactly? That means where everyone flips? The consciousness well, uh, flips for Enough everybody. of the uh, beings have awakenings to shift the consciousness, to remember that we all come from the source. Mm. We chose to be individuated aspects of divine love. When enough people understand that, we hit critical mass, and it has a global effect. Mm. And uh, the easiest... Example I know of to demonstrate that is 30 years ago, if you wanted organic food, you had to make a trek out to an organic farm or you found this little hole in the wall store. And today, organic food is everywhere. Yeah. And here's an example that just came to mind for me. So, uh, like I told you, every week I talk to a Jungian dream analyst. And every week I'm part of a men's group, uh, you know, through Skype. That's based structured around the Jungian ideas. One thing my Jungian analyst mentor has said, like you're talking about the critical mass, is men being um, in the hospital for the childbirth. That mm. for his dad's time, yeah. absolutely unheard of. Yeah. In, in this man who's in his 60s, Curtis is in his lifetime, the fathers are there watching this mystical you know, you talk about with reincarnation. It also the reincarnation makes you, of course, there's a absolute mysticalness in that uh, women's women are these vessels of new life. But then with all this reincarnation stuff, it's like women's bodies are part of this this this. Uh, I don't want to say like a tool, but like a mystical tool of soul of. Soul incarnations. It's yeah. like stupendous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, John Koenig, who wrote my autobiographies, he talks about when he had this memory of being a woman, it completely changed his attitude uh, about womanhood. Mm. So, um, some some of my regression therapist friends say that. Women are okay with remembering being men, but men are not mm. always okay with re remembering being women. But, you know, this is the beautiful thing. If we understand that we're both sexes or or, you know, the 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 social thing these days is the intersex uh, you know, uh, the transgender and all of that, if we realize, oh, that's just one of the experiences that we've chosen in these lifetimes, or, you know, think about all the religious um, disharmony that's going on right now. If we realize, oh, that religion you hate, you may reincarnate in that religion so mm. you can experience it from a different lens, there would be no prejudice. It is a very helpful tool on the fronts of prejudice, for sure. I can even feel it in myself reading all this stuff. And it's interesting because, I, again, I try not to bring up contemporary stuff, but with the transgender stuff, it's like, well, yeah, 
if here I am, Philippe, a man, but I still have these memories from another lifetime, these traumas from another lifetime where I was another sex, well, then why would that not also bleed into this lifetime, just like everything else we're talking about? Right. If if we're, so I just kind of find that fascinating. It's really just, this stuff is just absolutely blowing open the doors of mystery. Um, can you, are you okay with keeping, to keep going a little longer? I, I am. I get energized by okay, all of this. Okay, good. So another, so I talked about how movies might trigger it. I want to share another example because I've never really talked about it on the podcast and see if that also, you have something that, um, great from, so, so we talked about how, how movies might bring up some of these memories. Something else that happened for me was, so I told you I've been getting it, I'm into hunting and all these kind of outdoor pursuits. Um, so in January, I joined, um, some friends in Virginia. Um, they they do hound hunting with the dogs. And this is something that people have done all over the world. Uh, certainly the medieval Europe people hunted with dogs. So, um, and especially where I live in Appalachia, this is still very culturally re relevant for bear hunting with dogs. The, the dogs basically get you to the point of it. So I've been curious about this at first. I didn't know if I liked it. It seemed a little barbaric to be honest. Um, but my opinions have changed and morphed. Um, but I was part of one of these hound hunts. Um, and I was with my friends, uh, Taylor's who I was with, with the main part of this day. So here we are in Appalachia in Virginia, in the mountains. Um, we had hiked, we, me and him both have two dogs each. We're hiking. We just have already hiked five miles to get to the top of this mountain. I'm exhausted. The guy I'm with Taylor, he used to be an endurance athlete. So he's just a beast getting up this mountain. We release the dogs on the top of the mountain. They disappear in five seconds. Uh, they are down now they're down the mountain and I'm just like trying to catch my wind. I have a heavy backpack on. I'm not as physically active as this other guy. So now we got to go find the dog. So we've already walked five miles now. And that was on a trail. Now we're bushwhacking for what must've been two and a half to three miles. This is slow. We're pushing through Mount Moral, which is cutting our skin and our face. We're going down such steep embankments that they're covered in, in rocks that they'll just slide out from underneath you. All the leaves are slippery. We're just pushing through actually a designated wilderness. So it's wilderness. We're pushing through this. It's now been two and a half miles. I am literally praying that I can keep up with Taylor because I'm going to lose him. And then I'm just in the wilderness. So uh, I'm trying with every ounce of my body, energy, my energy to follow him. Now we're down in the bottom of this hollow in this creek. It's so steep on the sides that the midday sunlight is not even penetrating. It's in shadowed down in this creek. And we're walking on the creek and I, I'm so exhausted. I'm panting. I look up at him and he's pointing to his ear. He's like 25 yards in front of me. He's pointing to his ear, telling me he can finally hear the dogs. Now we all have GPS units. This is how you find your dogs. So we've been heading in that direction this whole time, but we've been out of earshot. Now, a lot of um, people that are hound hunters, and you can find this in, they talk about the, the whole reason they do this or the main reason is the beauty of the sound of the hounds, that there is like a, there's a song. That's how these mm -hmm. old Appalachian people talk about it, the song of the hounds. Um, fascinating. This is even like written about in mythology. So Hecate, goddess, Greek goddess, or, Heca, or Hecate, however you pronounce it, Greek goddess of, of witches, Greek goddess of um, ghosts and necromancy, she always had a horde of spirit dogs. And it's written that um, before mm. she appears, you'll hear the bang of the hounds. So here we are in this creek. And I'm so exhausted. I 
walking towards my friend, I lift my leg to put it over a boulder, over a log that's covered in moss. It's all this kind of dim blue light. And all of a sudden I hear the hounds and it's just, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like very ghostly sound coming, reverberating through the mountain. And I take this step over the log and I was just, my hair's standing up. I was in another time. And I was with what must have been some other men that were Native American scouts. I could just feel them around me. And this lasted about three seconds. And the second I realized I was actually in another time. I was actually in another time. The second I realized that, I was out of it. And tears flooded my eyes. My hairs all stood up. I was choking up. What the fuck was that? And I look back at my friend Taylor and, and he's trying to get to the dogs and I got, we got to close in on the, the dogs who have a bear at the top of this tree. And I'm just, I actually time traveled. Like that's the only way I can wow. say it. I, and I'm like, what the hell was that? Was that crossing a past life? Was that, is, are these Appalachian mountains just a very mystical place where, you know, time is blurry where people have weird experiences because I've talked to a lot of Appalachians. They say that too. I don't quite know what that was, Yeah, but it blew me away. Yeah. It could be geographical memory. It could be that the situation was so similar to uh, the past life memory that it just triggered all of that. Yeah. I wonder that too. Yeah. Maybe it's not even me. Did other group of hunters, a Native American, a fr- with a frontier guy, yeah. where did the exact same thing right there, and that opened a little portal. Right. I have no idea. And you might have uh, tapped into spirits as a medium. <laughs> See, that's another thing. <laughs> that's why I love being both a medium and a regression therapist, because uh, when I'm uh, with a client as a regression therapist, I can see what they're, where they're going. I don't tell them what I'm seeing. I just take notes on my, on the side of my paper, but um, but it's really helpful. I have found. And then as a medium, when these past lives come up, because I know the regression process, I know the therapeutic process. I can do more with that information than a medium who doesn't know how to do this stuff. Mm. And and you know, some mediums actually uh, poo poo. Uh, reincarnation, mm-hmm. if you can believe that, and um, you know, but from their religious perspective, they they can't abide by it, and so what's the point of that information coming up if you can't use it to benefit yourself for healing, insight, or your own evolution? Then what's the point? So, <sighs> okay, could we maybe switch gears a little bit and sure. talk about mediumship? Yeah. So you said you had this fascinating story. You started telling me about your grandmother. Yeah. I would love to hear that story. So evidently I have seen spirits all my life but about eight years old I I figured out that oh we don't tell people 
And uh, as I mentioned, you know, we um, uh, childhood trauma, we ended up running away from my dad when I was nine years old. We ended up on my grandmother's farm, and this is in the Panhandle of Florida. So my grandmother, uh, Southern Baptist, and, you know, she called herself a hard shell Southern Baptist. So that means, you know, no, no uh, drinking, no cursing, no this, no dancing, you know, all of these things. And um, my brother, sister, and I were living with her and her and granddaddy, but granddaddy was um, invalid, so it was mainly granny that you know, took care of us. My mother was in another city. And she would take us out on these excursions on her wagon, a mule-drawn wagon. We'd go in the woods. You know, she'd pick a bark here, a weed there. Uh, and, and this particular time, we, we picked some sassafras root. And so she and I were sitting around. She had three stoves. One was a potbelly stove. And in the evening, she liked to burn that and uh, make a tea on that stove. And so we made sassafras tea. I didn't know sassafras actually can help you um, have mediumship. It has some, I guess, some hallucinogenic qualities. I didn't know that at the time. She may have though, I don't know. Um, But we were having that tea and it was just Granny and me and I said to her, I finally got up the courage, you know, to, to say something to her. And I said, who are those folks that go through the house at night? I knew it wasn't granddaddy because, it, because he had had a stroke. He had a definite shuffle. And, and I knew granny's shuffle. So I, I, I asked her, who are those folks that, you know, went through the house at night? I'd experienced that before, so, you know, I thought, okay, maybe she can tell me who they are. And, and you know, she was a country woman, and she just said, oh, don't pay them no, never mind. They forget which room I'm in. And she said, if and they scare you, so she was Southern Baptist, she says, just tell them God go between me and thee. It's like, okay. She sees them. They give her messages. Okay, I'm not crazy after all. And so I still was afraid of them. It took me many more years. So I was only about 10 or 11 when that happened. And um, so I would use that that mantra that she gave me to whenever I was, whenever I sensed them around, because they didn't just stay at her house. They followed me around. And um, when I felt them. Uh, I'd say that, and sometimes I had to sleep with the light on because I just, you know, didn't want to see them. And I kept putting that out there. I don't want to see them. I don't want to see them. Until 1990, May 1990, my dad died. We had never resolved the stuff. I had finally reunited with him, but we had never resolved the stuff from my childhood. And but he had died, and at his funeral, I did. Uh, I guess they call him an apparition. I, I don't like that word, but what I could see was his hand and part way up his sleeve, enough to know that okay, that's my dad. And and the reason why I knew it was him was he wore this ring, which was a, a Masonic ring, had a, a ruby 
stone in it, but it had the Masonic, you know, emblem. And then the cuff of the sleeve and the jacket didn't match. He always wore patterns that didn't match. It's like, okay, that's dad, got that. You know, so I shut that down, but then I could feel, oh wait, he's angry about something. And I knew what dad's anger felt like, so it's like, what is he angry about? But then I had to tend to what was in front of me, which was all of this stuff going on about his funeral, which was a Buddhist funeral, by the way, very interesting. And, um, but that was my first thing. And I said, I have got to get over my fear of ghosts. Dad's got something he wants to say to me. Maybe he'll finally talk to me about why he did what he did. And, um, and I didn't know at the time that he was going to come to me to ask me to do some things that he realized he left undone. And, um, and also that all those questions I had asked him about his background and he would never answer those questions. He just like brush his hand like that and say, be American, be American not knowing that Chinese had been persecuted. And um, that's why he, he said that to me. He started talking to me about his background, his family, and that's what got me interested in Chinese genealogy and that and also my, my ancestors who were trying to get my attention. And... So we started having conversations we never had when he was alive. And that's why I wrote the book Conversations with the Hungry Ghost. In the Chinese culture, hungry ghost means someone who's um, in one of the hells that they're let out on uh, periodically to be able to go visit the family, and the family feeds them. And, and uh, so my dad was a hungry ghost. The, the deep communications with him started for me when I was in the meditation class that I was telling you about. My meditation teacher, Dr. Uh, Spano, had trained with Dr. Herbert Benson in a, a relaxation response. And uh, Dr. Benson had done a lot of research with monkeys and, and with the Buddhist monks and, you know, he did all these scientific tests with them and um, so Dr. Benson had used Chinese monks music, chanting music with the monkeys and, and, and the monkeys were wired up you know, to all of these devices and he saw how the monks chanting affected the monkeys and so that was the first time I'd, I'd been in his class for a couple of years, but that was the first time he told us that particular story. And to further get the feel for it, he played for us Tibetan monks chanting music. Well, it was that music that evidently ripped the veil between my world and and where my dad was, so we we were in this high meditation uh, part that is like holotropic breathwork. If you've ever heard of that, uh, Stanislav Grof, uh, Doctor Spano also studied with with Grof. So we did this modified form of holotropic breathwork, 
So under that type, with this Tibetan music playing, all of a sudden it was like, and we had this huge circle of people lying down on the floor, but it was like in the center of the circle, I could see vividly uh, my father, and it was funny because my father used to be a chef, and the first thing he would do when he'd get home was he'd pull off his chef jacket, but down to the waist, and and he wore one of those, you know, undershirts, real thin undershirts, and to kind of cool off. And so this is how I was seeing him with that chef jacket pulled down, the undershirt, sweat coming down him, and he's sitting in front of the Buddha of the Tenth Helm. And so his back is to me, and I'm like floating above them, and uh, and he's, it, it's like, you know, he's evidently doing like a life review in front of this Buddha. And um, the Buddha says to him, if you will help your daughter get over her fear of ghosts, we'll let you out of the 10th hell. And, and then the Buddha looks up at me and I'm thinking, oh shit, I'm caught. <laughs> and and then dad turns and he looks up at me and then he says to me oh forgive me forgive me and and he starts crying and and um i said i forgave you a long time ago i think what you really need to do is forgive yourself and it's just like that moment with anne marie and that nazi guy just unconditional love and as soon as he felt that it was like the whole scene of the tenth hell pixelated and then it was like blank and then the next scene that kind of pixelated into view was um, this monastery wall and the gate in front of the monastery wall and then it opens up and these monks come out and they put a brown robe on him and so in the Buddhist culture that means that you're taking refuge in the Buddha and they they pick him up and they take him into the monastery and I know that they're going to do healing work with him and not only that the person who was sitting next to me who was a friend of mine she said did you hear that crying during the meditation and and Dr. Spano, he must have been aware of it also because he said, I forget exactly what he said, but he said something that let me know that he was very much aware of what I had gone through. And that taught me how in the other side, uh, what I call the non-physical world, to stay away from all of the religious uh, uh, connotations, it is a mental construct. So where my dad was, he had created the 10th hell with his mind. That's where he felt like he needed to go. And, 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 and one of the things he told, he told me two things in that, um, that experience before he left was um, translate his tombstone, which was done in Chinese calligraphy, and go talk to Stella. And Stella was the liaison person at his funeral who knew the Buddhist rites, but also knew, you know, Christian rites. And 
And so I called her the next day and I said to her, can you, because I didn't know what the 10th hell was. I wasn't raised with Buddhism. And so I said, can you tell me what the 10th hell means? And she said, how do you know that? And I, I knew I, my ears were burning. I said, I can't lie to her. And so I just had to tell her what it was. My father came to me and, and he tell, told me he was in the 10th hell. And she says, I knew it. I knew it. His tombstone was not in the right position by feng shui principles. And, and so, you know, then we, she started explaining to me what it was all about. So that was my first experience of really being fully immersed into the medianship energies. It was, it was visceral. It was uh, not, not just watching a movie, it was being in the movie. And it was powerful. Interesting life, all this wild stuff. I know, I know. Who needs movies? Do you, so? Do you still see? Like, are you seeing ghosts around all the time? Um, yes, but they're the the spirits. Sorry, you said they don't like ghosts. They don't like the word ghost. They how about uh, specters? No, no, the spirits are, are, is what they tell me they like the best. But the, the ones that I am aware of most often are higher energies. And, but there's someone who's trying to get my attention lately. I know because they mess with my, like I'll be typing something and other words come up on the screen. Mm. You know, they'll flicker my lights or one even spoke through the intercom one time. And uh, so somebody's trying to get my attention. That's a lower level energy than what I'm typical typically talking with. Mm. Uh, but um, but I did have on on Wednesday. I was at uh, our group that I belong to. Uh, we have a healing circle, and um, so I was doing some sessions with people. And this person asked me, "Do you see beings around me?" Well, I don't keep it on all the time. I you know, use my free will, I turn it off. And otherwise, it gets very noisy. And, uh, but I said, Okay, let's see who's here. And without going into too many details, this being gave us enough clues, and I didn't know her very well. So he gave us enough clues. And she told me, Oh, my goodness, this relates so much to our relationship. Um, so one of the things we look for is evidence. And sometimes the evidence for me looks like symbols. So this is why I love Jungian's uh, work. And, and, and I have to remember not to censor. So I just shared what I shared, which was 
Uh, and I'm not into the Lord of Rings, but it was clearly I was shown a ring, and I knew it was the ring in the Lord of the Rings. And I forget the character's name who was uh, designated to carry it around and protect it. And it might be Frodo or Fro- Bilbo or something. Yeah, the, that main character. I, I can't watch it. I don't like it. I, I know. I don't either. I'm not attracted to it. Uh, me neither. And so that's why when that something like that shows up, it's like I really have to pay attention. But what he was showing me was how he felt so unworthy to carry the ring. Mm. And I was trying to think of that thing that he that they said, and I couldn't think of the exact words of it. But what she told me afterwards was the person that we connected with, he had this thing that was from that uh, was inspired by that that story mm. and he would call it my precious mm. fascinating so yeah it sounds like with some of the mediumship you're getting kind of like archetypal imagery is coming to you which relates at a much deeper level to the individual that you're reading yeah. or helping or healing, or whatever the phrasing is. Yeah, because the information is holographic. And so the way to 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 discern holographic information is through symbols or pictures or, you know, sometimes a movie will show up. So one of my very first cases that... When I was just opening up, I'll never forget that. When I was in a class, a a metaphysical class, this being was in my face, and it was a black man, Naples, Florida. There's not a lot of black people, but this man was had beautiful bone structure in my face. And so I'm looking around, you know, can't find too many black people in Naples, but I was at a youth retreat. I was a sponsor for a youth group, and... This, uh, we were at a retreat, and so this woman from Tallahassee was there, and all of a sudden the man showed up standing next to her. And, and so I didn't know her well, and I said, Have you lost somebody close to you recently? You know, kind of broach it, you know, in a, in a way that probably, hopefully, won't scare them off. And she said, Yes, my husband passed away, and she told me the time, and it was. It was about the time when I was in that metaphysical class. And um, she. so I said to her, I think he's got a message for you. And if you're open, I'll ask him to you know, give it to you. And she was, thankfully. And um, she, But she said, first of all, tell me what he looked like. And so I, you know, described him, which could be a lot of black men. You know, very beautiful round cheekbones, very distinct jawline, very close cut hair. And she says, Did he have a hat? And I said, Yes, but you know, it's really strange because it's like right here at his chest. And, and uh, she says, Yep, that's the way we buried him his hat on his chest. Wow. So, so then that was, you know, giving, giving me permission now to go move forward. So then the next thing I see is like the movie, the movie ghost. And I'm seeing that scene where Patrick Swayze gets on the, on the potter's wheel with Demi Moore, who's got her hands in the clay and everything. And, and I tell, and it's like, 
okay, don't know why this showed up, but, you know, I just tell her what I'm seeing. I, it, worst thing I could do was to judge it. And so I told her, and she says, oh, I haven't been on the pottering wheel. She and her husband were both potters. Mm. They had very different styles. She says, I haven't been on it since he passed. And so, oh, and now that's making sense. And he, and she was saying, uh, he was saying to me, get back on the wheel. He wants to work with her to create a new form of pottery. Holy God. So... Isn't that wonderful? So, in that example, there's the potential that her creativity, if she's really open and channeling what creativity is, is she's actually still going to be working in partnership with her former husband. That's right. And, and it gets better. A year later, I saw her at another retreat. She had gotten back on the pottery wheel, created this other form. She did raku. So she created a form of raku. She entered it in an international competition in Taiwan, and she did very well in the competition. So she had to share that with me. And um, so that just, you know, it, it was so affirming. That's incredible. There's an amazing William Blake, the famous poet oh, yes. and painter and, and mystic. Um, he um, supposedly invented a form of printing because his dead brother, as a as a spirit, came to him in a dream and told him how to invent this type of printing process. Wow. And then he invented it. So it's like, yeah, how much of, you know, first of all, if you're a creative person, you know that it's not your creativity. That's why I kind of brought up my feelings regarding this whole cultural appropriation idea. Like, Creativity itself is so mysterious. It's not like I want to do this. It's often like I, I paint, I have a side of my work where I paint my dreams and paint my nightmares. That's not me. I'm not making that up. Things have come and I'm just depicting the things that came. Nice. Some of them are, some of them are super intense. Um, so I think many people who are really at the level of what I consider a true artist are almost mystics. I mean, like Salvador Dali, where are these images coming from? He's not sitting there saying, I want to do that. He's opening to channel these, th these images. Right. Um, so absolutely fascinating to think that not only are we in connection to wherever creativity comes from, but it might literally just be our deceased loved ones helping out. Right. And, and I, I really feel like it was my ancestors who helped me write conversations. And now the book I'm working on about cosmology of reincarnation, I feel those people who've gone before me moving my hand. Hmm. So here's, let's, I, we've been talking so long, but this is awesome. Maybe to kind of wrap it up, how do, because we could probably talk for another six hours about all this stuff. How does, do you see the reincarnation and the ghosts, sorry, the spirits? How do you see those? Where do those come together? So here's what I'm wondering. We die. When you listen to these people talk about their near-death experiences, often they are surrounded by their former loved ones. Okay. Well, what if our loved one has re already reincarnated? Are you going to see them on the other side? Well, that's, a, that's an aspect that just came up recently in the class that I'm taking, uh, and the Chinese believe that a portion of our soul energy is in this physical body. When we die, uh, it a portion of it 
stays with wherever you're buried. And then there's a, a practice that we have, which is a tablet that goes on the ancestral altar. So a portion of that energy is with the ancestral altar in the tablet, and another portion is in the bardo or whatever I call it, the non-physical world. So the concept is if our energies are infinite, why are you limiting it to this one little thing, you know? But here's where the tie-in comes between mediumship and reincarnation, we're so focused on the physical world that we forget that that is only one half of the earth experience. The non-physical world is another half of the, uh, the earthly experience. But even beyond that, that's our, our dualistic nature that thinks in that way. But when you think in transcendence, now you've got to come into the divine experience, the divine realm, which is even above the, the non-physical world. So I feel like it's waking us up to what is really going on here. Which is a lot. Yeah, it's dynamic. There's infinite possibilities. If you can imagine it, it can be so. Wow. Should we just stop right there? Yeah, well, uh, you know, to leave it with what uh, John Lennon said, you know, imagine. That beautiful song, Imagine. In closing, do you want to tell people where, if they're in the Richmond area, they're interested in contacting you for mediumship, for regression, um, if they want to check out some of your books, do you want to say a little something about where it's to go? It's real easy. Um, um, my website is my name, uh, Carol, C-A-R-O-L-E-L-O-U-I-E, so carollouis.net, and um, all about my services, descriptions, um, my books are there. There's some YouTube videos there of uh, different talks that I've done and also about the Reincarnation Symposium that I've been organizing. This will be our fourth year. This year it's going to be in, in San Jose, California, but it will also be online. And again, it's been a calling. I've been guided to do this. And uh, I, I, it's just magical is all I can say.
Knowing how much I adored you 